Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan. Our co-host Nick Stevens is out this week. Uh, but nonetheless, we have some big news to announce, which is the first major move of this offseason as far as our podcast is concerned. We are now part of the Believe Podcast Network. Um, we are not going to change anything. If you are a member of our Patreon community, everything will remain exactly the same. Otherwise, there is going to be some subtle changes here now that we are part of the Believe Podcast Network, which we are very thrilled to be part of. And Bob, I'm going to turn that over to let you kind of explain to our listeners what they can expect from now on. Well, to be fair, we don't know exactly what it's going to be like going forward, but there will certainly be like some subtle changes. We might break into like multiple smaller episodes, but if you're a patron, you will continue to get the full recording like you usually do as soon the night we do it. Uh, just for the non-patrons out there, you might, you know, be seeing some small changes, but we're still the same podcast. We're still talking about the same stuff. It's just going to be formatted differently. And, you know, hopefully we get a little more uh, exposure being on a network as opposed to independent type of thing going on. So, yeah, excited to do it. And uh, can you believe it? Well, and we want to thank uh, Chris Stoner and everyone at Baltimore Sports and Life for their years of support really helping us bring this podcast off the ground, not to mention the writing that the three of us did over there. Continue to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. We'll certainly be rooting for the site. But from now on, going forward, Orioles on the Verge will be part of the Believe Podcast Network. And it's fitting that on our first show on our new network, we're actually joined by the person who has the most guest appearances on this show. He is a writer for the Baltimore Banner. And he has just released the Orioles' top 10 prospects list over at Baseball America. He is John Mioli. John, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Congrats on the move for you guys. I'm listening as, uh, you know, I'm here as a guest, and I'm the first to hear as, as a patron what's, what's going on with the show. What an honor. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And this is, a little, this is a little bit different than when we've had you on in the past because usually we've just had the top 10 to talk about. But we're fresh off the winter meetings, and the Orioles did make a notable move in Nashville, signing Craig Kimbrell to a one-year contract. Kimbrell presumably stepping in to be the closer with Felix Bautista out for the 2024 season. John, you had a pretty interesting piece in the banner in the light in light of this move, which is that this signing is very similar, but also a little bit different than what we've seen the Orioles do in recent off seasons under Michael Elias. So, how do you assess this move? Yeah, you know, they clearly have found, you know, they have a level of comfort in giving guys who have like a track record of doing one thing very consistently, you know, a one-year deal for whatever they think that one year is going to be worth. Um, you know, Kyle Gibson and Jordan Lyles are, you know, have been who they are for a long time and the Orioles gave them 10 whatever million dollars a piece to do exactly that. Um, you know, Adam Frazier before that, Jose Iglesias, Freddie Galvis, like you know exactly what those guys are. Um, and, and, and they did that. Uh, the difference is, is that, you know, the downside of those guys isn't going to hurt you terribly. And there's not a ton of upside anyways, when you sign a closer, um, you know, let alone, you know, Craig Kimbrell's done it really well for a very, very long time and nine time all-star. Um, but he's going to be 36 years old next year. Um, a one year deal to fill the Felix Batista hole is exactly what the Orioles would be looking for. You just kind of wonder you know, th th there's only one way for that to go well, and it's for him to be a really good closer. And like, there's a lot of ways for it to go badly. And that's not to say that he it's going to go badly. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't think they were going to sign Josh Hader, you know, anything like that. They're not going to get into bidding wars and for, for like a long-term closer when they have a long-term closer, who's just not able to pitch in 2024. But, you know, I've always kind of thought like there are no bad closers. You you don't get the chance to be a bad closer. You you blow a couple saves and then you're not a closer anymore. So, you know, the Orioles are not signing. You know, they're not going into this thinking that like oh if he we need just like a thirteen million dollar like seventh inning guy we're cool. Um, you know, they're signing him for a job and he's done that job very well for his entire career, and they just need it to go well for for them. It does remind me of the the Jordan Lyles and Kyle Gibson signings in another way where it's like, you know, the reaction on Twitter is what? No, not him. 
but really, I mean, it's not really one you can get too high or too down on. I mean, look, he's he's got his his whole career. He's I can't believe he's only like thirty five year old on thirty six as long as he's been around. But you know, he he's been a solid pitcher for a long time. Actually, has bounced back the last two or three years after a couple really down years. Yeah, I think he's just a, a stable veteran arm for the for the bullpen. I'd still like to see them go out and either trade for or sign for another guy, maybe like a a Matt Moore, a lefty, or like a, I know this is a little more ex- expensive, but Robert Stevenson. I really like the way uh, Tampa Bay built him up when they acquired him. But yeah, just you know, this only makes the Orioles better uh, for twenty twenty four. And you know, instead of signing Hater like you said for what a four or five year deal, you get one year and an option. So it's kind of like Cal Gibson combined with the Michael Givens deal. You have the team option in case he pitches really well, or and or Felix Bautista, you know, struggles coming out of his rehab from after getting Tommy John. So, yeah, I like the signing. It's not like one that gets you excited, but it's a good move. Yeah, and I think also, I think, you know, I, I saw, you know, I don't think you're talking about somebody who's at his peak, but, like, the guy throws two pitches. He's only ever thrown two pitches. Um, you know, when, when those pitches are on, he's going to get you three outs in relatively quick fashion when – you know, when, when they're not hold on to your butts, cause it might, you know, it might not be sober smooth, but he more often than not gets out of those too. Um, you know, I, I, I just think, I, I think it's a real, I think it's pretty interesting about what the rest of the off season is going to look like, because really like, this is like the Orioles were already going to be at their payroll for last year, basically with arbitration raises alone. And if you think about Gibson Givens, Adam Frazier, like, it's like, and then like the Flaherty, Fujinami, Hicks, like little ch- spare change money. Like they had like $26 million come off the books. They're going to have like 25 in our braises. And like, this is 13 already. So like if they are going to make the moves that everyone's kind of expecting them to, um, they're going to be in a payroll range. That's normal for like, uh, not even normal. It's going to still be like below average, but um, you know, for them in this phase, they're going to be pushing um, into an area that they haven't been in a long time. And, and I'm pretty interested to see how much farther they go on that. Well, and before we move on to the list, we want to get your thoughts on this. Where is the offseason going to go from here? Because one thing we really didn't see at the winter meetings was that first big pitcher on the trade block moved. So a lot of the guys that theoretically were available to the Orioles coming into Nashville are now still available through trade. Is that a route that they're still interested in going? I, w- I would think so. Um you know, I think that I think that we saw. You know, yes, we saw the Orioles make this signing. You know, Eduardo Rodriguez signed eventually last night. Um, the Soto deal mercifully got done, and we can just all just move on with our lives now. <laughs> um, but but it, it seemed pretty clear that that whole you know, it seems the pitching market is kind of held up by Shohei Otani and what he's going to do, and there's going to be a couple other pieces to fall. But with Eduardo Rodriguez off the table, you know, there are still guys who can be the upgrade that the Orioles are seeking in free agency, but it's not a very long list um, of guys who in free agency are there. So I think you are going to see them being, you know, aggressive in those trades. I think that Michael has put it pretty well that you don't just trade guys for the sake of trading them. Um, we know, and we've talked about on this, you know, on this podcast before that, like they're not in the business of selling low on these players and these assets. They're going to just, they're going to, you know, ride it out and expect them to continue to improve and eventually help this team. But I think that that is a really, really good avenue to go. I think also, you know, when I saw that Mariners trade get made um, with Jared Kelnick going to the Braves, I just, I just kept thinking about, you know, if they're looking for like arbitration type outfielders, you know, the Orioles have those in spades. If they want to put one of those guys with a prospect package and get one of their younger starters who are going to be here for three, four or five years beyond this. Like that is something I feel like the Orioles would be a lot more comfortable doing than putting together, you know, a meaningful three or four prospect package for one year of Corbin Burns or, or two years of Dylan Cease. So that's kind of, you know, that piqued my interest. I'm sure the Orioles made those calls, you know, God knows Jerry DePoto probably called them because he's interested in making trades. Um, all the time. So, so, so I, I, I kind of, that one, that one piqued my interest, but I think there's a lot more options on the trade market. And I think the Orioles, you know, if they decide they want somebody you know, have that Trump card of being able to just go get whoever they want. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we did see that report. I think even Rock retweeted it about the Orioles being favorited to sign some Japanese starting pitcher who I honestly hadn't heard of before uh, I saw that report. It was supposed to be for like a three to five million dollar deal, a back end starter type. I could see that happening potentially. And then, you know, like you said, either a combination of like Hayes and Urias with a prospect or two to try to get somebody or or even just trading Urias for a bullpen arm. Maybe there's some kind of swap there and then they can use a couple prospects to get one of the pitchers that is available after all the chips fall. But yeah, I, I think they'll get a starter, hopefully one more reliever. I don't know. Orioles fans shouldn't expect too much more than that. But uh, maybe if they trade a Hayes or or someone like that, that Santander, I guess, they could potentially bring in a a cheap option in the outfield, maybe bring Hicks back, something like that. But yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. And Michael Elias was asked about extensions. That would be that would be nice. But I think that that might have to wait until uh, the Forbes article comes to fruition sometime next year. There's a lot of stuff going on on that front. I think that's going to be something we'll have our eye on throughout the off season. I think, but. I want to turn our attention now to the new top 10 list that's over at Baseball America for the Orioles. John, as he has over the last several years, put together a really good list. And I want to start off with this question, and it's one that I've asked you before, but I like to ask it at the start of every new prospect list season. The Orioles, once again, have a highly rated farm system with the guy who's probably going to be the number one overall prospect in baseball at the top. But what makes this year's list different from anything we've seen maybe in, say, the last two or three years? I think if there's one common trait of uh, between this year's and last year's, which is not exactly answering questions, is that last year it was pretty impressive how much talent had concentrated um, in AAA and in the high minors and you know, theoretically was on the verge of, of making it to the, to the big leagues and helping the Orioles out. Um, and that was true to like an even more extreme extent this year. Um, and the youth aspect of that at the top with Jackson holiday and Samuel Basayo and Kobe Mayo, you know, 21 years old for Mayo, you know, 20 and 20 now for, or 19 and 20 for Basayo and holiday. Like that is something that is really, really hard to, you know, that's this, these rankings are a snapshot in time, and it's really hard to have a snapshot where you have three players, you know, in, in their age 19, 19, 21 seasons who did what those three guys did. Um, so for, for them to all be, end in the high minors and be on the track they are really adds an upside that I don't think that you had in list pass at the top. I mean, you knew what you know what Adley Russian is going to be at that point you know what Grayson Rodriguez is going to be at that point. These are like great prospects who were pretty close to being the finished products and on their way to great players. You know, Gunnar Henderson wasn't number one. I think he was like number four or five out of 2021. Um, Has the year that he has is in the big leagues is close to graduating, but he's number one last year. Like, you know, that's a really good player. You know, he's going to be the rookie of the year. Um, but he's already really good. I think that the difference this year is that those three players are as young as they are, as talented as they are, and have you know a lot of upside. There's no, there's no saying with any of them that like you can you can pretty well peg what they're going to be. You can dream on it, but like the development is still happening, and I think that's a pretty cool aspect of this list. Personally, I know Mike Elias said when asked, are any of the prospects untouchable? He said, I can think of at least one. I personally have a very hard time seeing any of these top three going just because of the the age. They're pretty close to the majors already. And just the the upside there, the team control. I, I don't think Mayo, Basayo, or Holiday are going anywhere. But that leads me to ask you about Jackson Holiday. How realistic of a chance does he have to make the opening day roster? I think the Orioles were asked a lot about that from the media uh, this this past week, and sounds like he's going to get every chance. <laughs> that could mean anything. He's going to get every chance to make the team. But do you think they go for that that draft pick again? I, th- I certainly think it's possible. I I would kind of caution. I'm not trying to like 
pulled down, you know, Jackson Holiday, but I think that, you know, rookie of the year level production is is a hard thing to is a hard thing to, you know, pull off. If an AL team signs Yamamoto, like that guy's probably going to be the rookie of the year. <laughs> so, so what, you know, so the Orioles probably take that into consideration. I also think that like a good year for Jackson Holiday as a, as a 20 year old in, in his full season in the big leagues is like going to be, is not going to be like a Gunnar Henderson. It, sitting here right now, it would be very surprising if it was like a Gunnar Henderson level performance. Um, I think he could do it. I mean, we all see him in the cage um, periodically on, on him and his dad's Instagram account. Um, you know, you get, it must be really nice for everyone to get to see, you know, the Orioles hitting drills in full, in full, uh, in full view for the world to see. But, you know, so I think there's, he's addressing like whatever developmental goals they have for him, but I think it would be challenging, but to answer your question, like directly, like I do think they're going to give him every chance to do it. Um, we saw what that looked like with Grayson Rodriguez this year. He made a lot of starts. Um, they didn't go great. And then he didn't make the team. Um, I, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of not cringe, but like I, I make a face at the idea of putting this on the players. Um, I don't think it's going to matter for Jackson holiday. If he thinks he's playing for a job or not, he's going to just go out there and he's going to spray line drives and, you know, play good defense. It's going to, you know, he's going to let the chips fall where they may, but I think that they'll give him that real shot. I think if there's a way to get him on the team and if there's a need to have him on the team, they'll do that. But right now there are trying to do the math and count in my head. There are like, seven people like seven infielders on the 40 man roster who are all going to be there. And I don't think any of them, you know, I don't think any of them are going to let Jackson holiday just take their job. So it'll be a fun thing to watch. I think he will play a lot in spring training. It'll probably be really cool. Maybe a game or two will even be on Masson and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, kind of going down the top 10 a little bit here. Chase McDermott cracks this section of your list. You'll have the overall top 30 of baseball America later in the off season, but we get constant questions from our listeners about whether or not Chase McDermott is now ahead of Cade Povitz. Statistically, McDermott had the better season in 2023 out of those two. But if you had to look at where both of them are in their development right now, what is really the difference between McDermott and Povitz? Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of tiebreakers. I think I did a bad job in the BA chat of explaining this and I should have thought about it more because it's pretty much one of the only like real coin flips. I think like Kerstad Kowser was a good coin flip and this is a good coin flip. Um, I think that that's something that people, you know, I don't, I think it's always been something a part of the game, but I think that it's really meaningful both for the Orioles and for development in general and for being a good big league pitcher is to be able to, you know, create swings and misses and create weak contact in the zone. Um, you know, you have to be able to locate your pitches in the strike zone and command them the good parts of the plate to be able to get them to chase and to be able to get them to, to, you know, bite on your nasty breaking stuff and, and all your off speeds and all your chase pitches. And, I think that in AAA, you know, I, even in Bowie, um, you know, Chase McDermott is an incredibly hard pitcher to square up. Like he had the lowest, I believe, betting average against in all the minors this year. Um, that was the case in Bowie. And, you know, two things happen when guys go to AAA. One is you get to pitch with a big league ball. And like there are a handful of pitchers who in the last few years of that being the case, haven't had any impact whatsoever. Um, in that Drew Rahm was one of them. And, and I think Chase McDermott was one of them. So it wasn't like he was dealing with anything changed in the baseball. And the second is that there's a, there's a robot up, um, and you're not able to steal strikes, you know, a ball and a half off the plate, like you could at lower levels. So I think that, you know, the conviction of being able to go up a level and still command the baseball the way that he wanted to, and that automated strike zone, keeping, Chase McDermott in the zone a little more consistently, you know, he still walked guys, you know, it's, it's kind of like a DL hall, like walk issue where he's not like walking guys a lot. It's just like, there will be a spurt of walks that in a game that elevates it. And like, that's not good, but I think that he was in the zone a lot more consistently. And when you have those pitches and you have those weapons and you have that fastball and you're in the zone with it, that's just such an advantage. And I don't think Kid Povich especially as the year progressed to AAA. I think he got better towards the end in the, in this facet, but 
as far as I understand it, he never really he he was not able to execute his pitches, and we know he has great stuff in the strike zone the way that the way the McDermott was. So that was honestly the separator for me. Um, so you know, I, I I hesitate to say that it was because his stats were better. Um, because that's not necessarily true, but like the thing that made his stats better, his ability to command the ball in the strike zone, his ability to use those weapons um, that we have pretty real evidence at this point are very hard to square up for at least minor league hitters. Um, that really, that really kind of was a separator for me, but I think that it's really close. I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm pretty sure they have the same grades. Um, so like, it's just a matter of preference. Um, and you talk to people inside, outside the organization. And I think a lot of people were kind of in the boat that, you know, everyone else was that, you know, you would come into the season, you would have thought Povich was, was that, you know, was the top guy of that next year. And based on what we saw this year, McDermott kind of flipped that a little bit. I also feel like if the rotation is full, the guy you're going to trust in the bullpen more is going to be McDermott. I feel like he profiles better as a, High leverage reliever than Povich would. But moving on to the next question, which is, it, first of all, it's weird to see the first-round pick for the Orioles be all the way down at number nine, Enrique Bradfield Jr. But do you feel like he could be that next Orioles prospect like we saw with Kowser and Norby and Holiday is a freak of nature, but who just rises two or three levels in his first full season of pro ball and gets all the way up to AAA next year? I do. Um, I, I think it'll look very different. You know, Connor Norby hit the, I don't know if he hit 30, I know he had 29, 30 home runs, um, you know, climbing those three levels, you know, Kowser hit the cover off the ball pretty much the whole season. Those guys got to buoy at the middle of the season and just all destroyed it and, and got that, you know, that last September move up to AAA. I think it's going to look a lot different. Um, with Bradfield, who obviously has a very different skill set than those guys, you know, he is an elite base runner. He is an elite defender. He has uh, really, really good swing decisions, and he makes contact in the zone, you know, very, very consistently. Great bat to ball skills, all those things. Um, I, I'm very interested to see what the criteria for him to get promoted are going to be, um, because it's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody with his speed, with his contact ability playing on that turf field in Aberdeen, like is going to be able to get on base a ton, have a, like a ridiculous average, like huge on base potential. And like, at what point do the Orioles kind of look under the hood and say, okay, are you hitting the ball in the air enough? Are you hitting it at good angles enough? Are we, are you being challenged enough? Can you be challenged to do that here? Um, and will you be challenged to do that enough at Bowie? So I, I think that possibility is there, but it's not going to be like, oh, this guy is like, slugging like crazy with like you know a nine something ops let's get him out Aber like let's get him out of aberdeen let's get him to buoy let's get him out of buoy let's get him to norfolk i think that he could have a high ops but it's going to be on base driven um he's going to steal a ton of base he's going to play great defense um so it's going to be more about what they view his contact um quality as to me that's kind of where i think it's going to be and i'm i'm really fascinated to see where they think that work and that development is best done for him Speaking of a guy you just mentioned, Connor Norby, um, right now it would seem that he's basically blocked from the major leagues. At least that sort of seems to be the perception right now. Another strong year at Norfolk. Two questions I really have in mind for you are, number one, do you think that we get through the offseason with Norby still in the Orioles organization? And two, if that does happen, is there a path for him to the major leagues early in the 2024 season? Um, on the first one, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that like, Oh, they should definitely trade him. I think that he has an attractive profile that, that certain teams, you know, would like I've talked as long as I'm talking to people on this, they're like, Oh, the Brewers love guys like Connor Norby. He'll be great for them. Um, you know, that's only true if it happens. It's not true if it doesn't happen. Um, but I think that he's definitely in the group of players that, the Orioles, you know, would probably think hard about listening to. I don't think that says anything about him as a player. I just think it's kind of the position and the reality that he's in as a second base, you know, maybe left field only type guy um, with a lot of guys who are going to be able to defend better than him at either of those positions ahead of him. You know, 
he had a good season. He was he was pretty consistent. I don't think I don't think he was like I don't think he was you know at his best the whole year. But his performance by the end of the year was was pretty was something to be proud of in AAA. Um, that said, for him to get to the majors, you have to you know early next year you have to think about what would need to happen basically for you know whoever the opening day second baseman is. Jackson Holiday, I don't know, um, but if it's Jordan Westberg, if it's Ramon Urias, if it's Joey Ortiz, um, you basically have three options to to be the starter, and you would need realistically for all three of those options not to be available or in the organization or on the roster for for Connor Norby to have that chance. It's a really tough position to be in. Um, he has done nothing wrong at all. Um, if he's in other organizations, he's probably better regarded than he is as an Orioles prospect, if we're being honest, because the type of production that he's had is really impressive. But I don't know if, A, that gets the recognition. It, it, it probably should because of the people who play around him and the people who have you know, made it to the majors before him. And I think part of the issue is the reality that kind of people who follow this system and follow this organization see. It's like it's hard to envision where that space is for him. And I don't think that you know, it impacts everyone as a person, but like, I think he's the type of player who, you know, who takes that as a challenge. And I think that's going to be better for him in the long run, no matter where he's going to end up. Yeah. Uh, that's a really tough position for him. I know he's probably frustrated by it. Cause I feel like if he's in a lot of other organizations, he's already graduated prospect status by now. And here we are still, he could spend a whole nother year in AAA if he's still in the Orioles this next season. But I want to go to that other coin flip you were talking about, Colton Kowser versus Heston Kerstad. You went with Kowser 5, Kerstad – wait, Kowser – hold on. i got to look at the list. Kowser 4, Kerstad 5, excuse me. And obviously Kowser didn't impress very much with the bat when he came up, made his major league debut, and Kerstad did. But we think Kowser can play probably a serviceable center field, a decent corner outfield, while Kirst adds maybe Anthony Santander levels of defense. Uh, what made you put Kowser above Kirstad? I, th I think there are more avenues for Colton Kowser to be, you know, an everyday big leaguer than there are for Heston Kirstad at this point. I think Kirstad's power is is undeniable. I think that what he did when he came up in the big leagues was was real and you know he deserved the chance to be in the big leagues and he deserved you know the opportunities he got and he probably deserved a little better results based on how he hit the ball it's just that's what he's going to do you know if he does that it's going to go well um i do i wonder you know in the same way that like gunner henderson kind of like had that like okay i'm up and then like you know there's people sitting in rooms in in 29 offices figuring out how to get this guy out and they're going to have that piece of paper for every pitcher that faces the orioles next year and it might be an adjustment period for a guy who has a good plan of attack, but not necessarily like the best swing decisions. Um, he just needs to be good enough in, the, in those categories to get to his power, and he can. I just think with Kowser, there's you know, you know exactly what you're going to get. I think that he was challenged significantly when he got to the big leagues. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the Orioles were in a different position. If it, you know if they didn't need to send him down when they did, you know, he might've figured it out in a week, in two weeks. Um, I think that between his on-base capability, his ability to play all three positions, um, he can run. Every time I do this process, I hear more and more about, you know, the team's expectations for his power potential, which are a little different and a little higher, honestly, than most people outside the organization. I think they still think that he can, you know, as he taps into his aggression and, and starts to drive the ball a little more that he can, he can hit for a little more power than most people would assume on the outside. So I think that you really get to this point with him where it's like, he can be a lot of different things. And I think that almost is an edge. Um, but I'm, but I feel like we're going to know pretty quickly, um, you know, spring training is spring training. I'm sure he's going to have a good spring. Um, but I, I, I shouldn't say I'm sure if, you know, he could have a good spring, he can come out. I think we're going to know pretty quickly how he has addressed, you know, some of some of the things that he learned this year and some of the shortfalls, I think we're going to really know quickly what that looks like. And, and I just, but to answer the question, I think there's just more avenues to be, you know, an everyday player, but I don't think there's much between them. Um, and, and I think the Orioles are probably thinking long and hard about how they're going to, 
get them both in the lineup consistently next year because I'm not sure AAA is going to do either of them any good. Let's start there with um, Kowser. If the expectation internally is for him to hit for more power, what kind of power do you think the Orioles are seeing? Is it 2025 home run power? Is it higher? Where do you think that they see it versus where maybe the rest of the league and the rest of us see it? Well, I think there's just the perception of him as like an on-base type guy, um, a guy who's going to, you know, and he, yeah, honestly, Colton Kowser probably has perception too. Like he just wants to be able to like, you know, get on base and hit the ball the other way. And, and, and you know, you know, flip, footballs where they're coming back from where they're coming to and, and, you know, get out the left field and get on first and, and find your way to second. And like, that's all well and good, but he hits the ball hard when he connects and he hits it at good angles a lot. Um, I think that, I think he also has, you know, demonstrated through two years, like he's a fastball hitter. Um, there's some challenges with, with secondary stuff, but if you can tune your swing and tune your eye to try to turn on um, pitches, you can turn on and drive those fastballs and pull them the way that, you know, so many big leaguers make their money doing. I think that there is upside to do that. I'm not sure if it's 15, 20, 25 home runs, but I think that because he's a guy that walks a lot, um, because he has that, you know, center field table setter profile, I think that the power can be overlooked. I'm not saying it's Heston Kerstad power. I'm not saying it's Pisayo power. It's definitely not Kobe Mayo power. Um, I just think, I just think that, and this was true last year too. Uh, we probably had the same conversation about how they think that, you know, if you want, you know, if he wants to be a guy who has a 450 on base, he could be a guy who has a 450 on base. If he wants to be a guy with a, with a 550 slug, like he could do that. Uh, you just kind of have to pick an avenue for that. And I think that's kind of where that thought comes from. So our favorite player, Joey Ortiz, he's in a, a weird spot coming into 2024 where, I mean, he's major league ready. I would imagine at this point, he's got a bunch of AAA at bats. He even made his major league debut last year. Didn't get a ton of time, but I think he hits the ball harder than a lot of people would expect. He obviously plays great defense. Is he at least going to have a chance to win a bench role in spring training? I think so. Um, I, I really think so. I think that it's going to be really hard for the Orioles to reasonably go through this entire offseason with the amount of infielders they have um, and the redundancy for that. I think that if you have the opportunity to pay Joey Ortiz, you know, three quarters of a million dollars or, or Jorge Mateo or Ramon Arias, you know, a couple million to do that, to do similar things. I think that, you know, I think all things being equal, you've probably picked Joey Ortiz. Now this was really the first full, this, the first year that he was the guy that he ended last year as. Um, so like last year, like the data was kind of like weird when you look, because he's, you know, he spent half the year not being terribly, you know, not having the best results and the best outcomes. And I think that a full year this year, I think teams saw a lot of things they like. I think they saw a little more chase than, than he had last year, which, which I know, you know, concerned some teams that were looking at the Orioles around the trade deadline. But you know what you're going to get defensively. Um, if you went into Norfolk in the right week as a scout, you saw a guy who hit the ball really hard. Um and was super productive offensively. And you saw a guy who you know is going to make every play. You know, you don't even have to worry about that. Um, so I, I think there's going to be an opportunity there for him. I, I, I wonder how it's going to materialize, whether it's going to be, you know, everyone's in spring training and he wins a job or whether a pathway is cleared for him you know, through a trade in the offseason. I, I, I think it's hard to, you know, just – these guys know the reality, like nobody's just going to get handed a big league job. If they were in this organization four or five years ago, like they might've been, but they're not, they're here, they're here now. They're in AAA right now. And everybody kind of understands that reality. But I think that the next few months are going to be interesting for the Orioles to kind of like show some faith in some guys and say like, we're giving you this chance, like come do it. Not like, okay, we're going to have seven infielders here. If you're one of the best three, you're on the team. Like, Make it so you're almost betting on them, and I wonder. I wonder if we're going to see any of that this off season. And speaking of a player that seems like he's on the doorstep of the major leagues, albeit not as close as Joey Ortiz, Kobe Mayo coming off of a really strong, healthy season between two levels, it feels like at this point there maybe is still a little bit of refinement with him down in the minor leagues. But 
What areas do you think the Orioles will want to see him make progress in before he gets that extended shot at the majors? Um, I would say it's probably all the things, you know, I, I would, it's all the things that you would expect somebody to need seasoning at a triple A, you know, it's the swing decisions, it's the defense, um, you know, the kind of the, kind of the, the, the way to be called up, uh, you know, the way to be called up checklist for guys who, who are seemingly ready. I think that there were significant improvements in, in those swing decisions and in what Kobe Mayo swung at and what he was able to hit this year. Um, he started as the season progressing, being able to drive balls on the outer half the other way. Um, you know, he told me about a conversation that they were having in the cage and buoy as things were kind of getting tough. And, you know, somebody said, Oh man, we got to start figuring out how to hit like that slider low and away. And he was like, no, we have to just stop swinging at it. Like we can't hit it. And like, and that is the challenge of like every, that is a challenge that every hitter faces at some point in their, you know, young lives. We saw what it looked like for. I don't know, a month when, when Ryan Mountcastle came up from his vertigo bout and, you know, he was locked in on the, you know, he was on the brink ambler, you know, pregame BP, he was doing all that stuff that they do in the minors that, you know, is available to them in the big leagues, but you're, you know, but, you know, you don't always do it every day. Uh, he was doing all that and he was not swinging at pitches that he couldn't drive and he was swinging at pitches he could drive. And for like a month, he was like one of the best hitters in all of baseball. Um, and then it kind of regressed and he went back to being, you know, just a good hitter. And I think what the Orioles are going to look for, for Kobe Mayo this year is more signs that he could execute those game plans and, and make those, you know, those favorable swing decisions more consistently because the you know, same as, same as, um, you know, Heston Kerr said, you don't need to be, you know, Adley Rutschman in your swing decisions when you have that kind of power. You just need to get people to come back into the strike zone so you can so you can punish those balls. I, my understanding is he made a lot of progress as the AAA, you know, second half went on of learning how those pitchers work and were going to attack him and how to combat that. Um, we saw that just based on if you look at the game logs and how his, his season went. Um, it's a really fascinating case because there's such there's such upside there offensively. You just have to find, you know, where the best position for him to play defensively is and make sure that, you know, make sure that he is going to be ready to be the best version of himself offensively as he can be when he call gets called up because the Orioles have seen it with players, you know, better than him, not as good as him as they come up. Once you have a hole for major league hitters to exploit, they will, and that's just what's going to happen until you figure out how to do it. So the more holes you can close in AAA – the better off you are. Yeah, this makes me think, you know, as much as everyone's like, got to get holiday up so he can win that rookie of the year draft pick. I honestly think Kobe Mayo is the guy that might uh, give you a better chance at, at winning that if he were to start the year in the majors, but let's go to the new hotness, Samuel Desayo. I mean, it's unprecedented. The Orioles have the number one prospect in baseball three years in a row. I, they could honestly have it four years in a row, Basayo could be that guy. If you compare his numbers at his age and level to Julio Rodriguez, Wander Franco, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., his numbers are better than theirs when they were 18 years old in A ball creeping up into into double A. Ridiculous power. And he was like an, a snowball rolling downhill all season, just getting better and better, learning and developing as the year went on, which is pretty impressive. Um yeah, you called this a year ago. You said he's going to be in the top five. You didn't say top two, but uh, we'll give it to no. you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just talk about Basayo. Uh, I think this kid is special. Yeah, you just um, – you really you really can't predict something like this happening. And I think what makes it more impressive to me – and I remember I was doing some calls. I did a – you know, I think a little BA, like, monthly thing about, like, a guy who was making his full season debut. And the crux of it was, like, Nobody in this organization, you know, it's ran it's three years since they had an international program producing players, you know, to come to the minors. But like, there's a long way between Sarasota and Delmarva, um, you know, talent wise, skill wise, and, and performance wise. And for him to start hot and stay hot and grind it out and keep getting better and then hit for power in Aberdeen, a place that nobody really hits like that, um, everything that he did was impressive there was a day that i was there um 
towards the end of the season. I mean, he wasn't playing there for long, but like, you know, Mike Elias was there. You know, Kobe Perez was there. Matt Blood was there. There was a lot of people there that last week in Aberdeen, and he hit a ball over the ground, screw shed in right field, and everyone was kind of looking at each other like, oh my goodness, like, <laughs> really? Like, we got, you know, this is what we're seeing right now. Like, this guy's, this is, we, like, we got another one. Um, I think that the idea that he could be the, the overall top prospect next year is, is not as slam dunk as, you know, Jackson holiday being it this year. Um, I, I do wonder, um, you know, I don't have any doubt what his production and Bowie's is going to look like. I think it's probably going to be, that might be a little silly, even if it's cold in April, which it will be. Um, I, I, I think there's going to be more scrutiny on, on him behind the plate. I think there's always work to be done there. I don't think this is like a, the situation of a guy who's never going to be able to catch. I think there's just work to be done to be able to have him, you know, do those things consistently that will make it so that you're comfortable back there behind the plate, because the reality is that is what, you know, that is what will keep him from moving really quickly. If anything, you know, you're not going to want somebody refining his catching and, and learning to do the things you want to do behind the plate consistently in the big leagues. He's not going to have to catch five days a week in the big leagues. Uh, the Orioles have a guy um, to do that, so it's not like a huge concern. But but I I, I wonder. I think if there's anything that's going to hold him back, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be concern about that. That said, he told me that he was going to come back even bigger next year. That's an interesting thought because he's already a pretty big young man, and he's going to be really young for his level, and he's going to have the potential to end in AAA, and you know. That is really for, for somebody that you know a year ago was had not pitched like played outside of Florida is is pretty impressive. If vibes were a tool, he's eighty grade. I mean that kid is just quietly confident, has so much fun out there. Yeah, he reminds me of Anthony Santander. I've said it on here before, just in his like attitude and the way he just walks around the field. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, who knows when it's going to happen. Maybe it'll happen. You know, maybe it'll be quickly. Um, maybe double A pitching will, will be a little different. you know, there are guys who, you know, I think in, in Aberdeen, you still have guys who are not really pitching to a scouting report. They're pitching to develop their stuff and they're going to throw you pitches that you can hit. Um, and, and you saw it with, we saw it with some other guys this year, you know, who, had holes that double-A pitchers could attack and they just decided to attack them until they figured out a way to stop it. Um, so it could be early where that happens um, to Masayo. But I think another thing we're going to be real, I'm really interested to find out and who knows when it will happen because it might not happen anytime soon is like what it looks like when there's a bad couple weeks, when there's a bad month um, because he's really young and he's really talented and that hasn't, that didn't happen this year. And, you know, Better players than him have had, you know, bad times. You know, Gunnar Henderson had a terrible start in Aberdeen. A year later, he was the number one prospect in baseball. Um, you know, these things happen, but I think that I think that's part of the development process that I'm going to be pretty interested to see. You know, not to say I'm rooting for him not to do well, but I, I'd be interested to see how it goes if, if there's a tough spell. I want to go to a completely different part of the top 10 now, and that's D.L. Hall. And now it's worth pointing out again to our listeners that we count prospect eligibility a little bit different than Baseball America does. We cut players off as soon as their rookie eligibility has expired, whereas with Baseball America, there is a little bit of leeway for a guy like Hall who has been up and down and still not, still has not thrown a lot of innings in the major leagues. He looked really good out of the bullpen down the stretch, and you could argue that his ability to step up when he did is a big reason why the Orioles won the division despite Felix Bautista's injury. With that said, we asked you about this at our live show at Checker Spot Brewing a couple months ago, and I'll bring it up again now. Is he a reliever going forward? Is he a starter? And have the Orioles really made up their minds yet? Um, I'll take those backwards. I don't think they've made up their minds yet. I thought it was pretty interesting that you know they were pretty open at the winter meetings. I don't know if it was Michael Elias or Brendan Hyde that said. I think Michael Elias said, you know. One of those guys, you know, between him and Tyler Wells, is going to end up in the bullpen. That's just the reality of having the amount of starters they do. Um, it was interesting to come out and say that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, it's just saying something that's true. You can't have like nine starters <laughs> um, 
and, and those guys are too good to just be like triple A depth. So somebody's, you know, something something has to give there. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hop off the starter train at this point. You know, I've I've ridden it from from pretty much coast to coast. You know, that train boarded. The train boarded in California, and we're like in Pennsylvania. We're almost we're almost at the Atlantic Ocean. Like I'm riding that out till the end. But I I think that a lot of the things that happened this year are things that make him you know, will make him a good starter if that opportunity arises. When he didn't have his best stuff in Norfolk, he was learning how to get guys out with you know pitching to the game plan and and sequencing and stuff like that stuff that you don't necessarily have to think about when you throw 97 from the left side and nobody sees that ever um i think that some of the some of the control stuff and his ability to throw the ball in the strike zone really played up once he was in the big league bullpen obviously it's easier for guys to do that for five batters and five innings that's why guys who don't make it as starters can be better in the bullpen i just think that we haven't really seen an extended opportunity for D.L. Hall to do that at a high level as a starting pitcher. Um, so at this point, you know, it's on him to just be that guy who can do that and be healthy and be the guy who, if they let you start a spring training game, just go out there and throw a bunch of strikes and shove. Like, if like part of this is going to be on if the Orioles bring in another starter, if they bring in two starters, who they want. You know, if they feel comfortable with, you know, CNL Perez and Danny Coulom as their lefties in the bullpen, you know, if Tyler Wells gets seniority, like there's a lot of stuff that's not in Dio Hall's control. Um, and there is some stuff, you know, you can't control when you get hurt, but like to be healthy and be available for this rotation competition that's going to happen in spring training is the best asset that he's going to have because we know about the stuff. I mean, look at his Savant page, it's all red, um, it all looks good. You, you give that a chance to be a starter as long as you can. And I think that having said all that, like there's probably not going to be more chances after this spring slash this year uh, for the Orioles, at least. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm never going to give, I'm not going to give up on that till until he's like, you know, Zach Britton just five years into his like relief career. But like, I, I don't see a reason to at this point. I'm just, you know, I'm pot committed as they say, but I'm also, you know, I also believe it. All right, uh, this is going to be a fun way to get to talk about 11 through 30 because I feel like a lot of these top 10 guys might be graduated this time next year, and we had you do this last time. What's your top five prospects in 12 months from now? Oh, my goodness. Um, all right, so we'll go Basayo one. That's an easy one. We'll still go Kobe Mayo two then we will have jackson baumeister then we will have enrique bradfield jr and then we will have a tie for fifth between dylan beavers and seth johnson that's fair uh i would be surprised if mayor's still prospect eligible but I mean, I probably would have said the same thing about like three guys that are still eligible this year. So fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he could easily, you know, it would be a bad time probably to be Kobe Mayo if he's still eligible because that means he spent a lot of time in Norfolk or something didn't go well, but he could also just play really well in Norfolk and, and get called up in August. And like, that could be the life. I don't know. Um, but I think that, I think Basayo is probably going to be on that track to be number one. Um, I think there's probably a wild card or two that we haven't thought of, but I think those are guys I'm, I'm strapping, uh, I'm strapping rockets to. So Jackson ball me, sir, your 2023 draft class prospect breakout for next season. Yeah. It's really, it's really fascinating to see how that kind of works. Like we've never seen like any kind of urgency, not urgency. That's not the right word, but like, what's it going to look like if he's just like doing, you know, like Mike Bauman's like first month in Delmarva when he gave up like nothing or like those guys that just go in Delmarva and dominate, like 
it seems pretty deliberate. Like these development plans, they have these pitchers on, but like he seems like he's pretty good. Um, and he seems like a guy who they could get better. He has all those traits, you know, like if we, we know about like, you know, his fastball shapes and his fastball traits and, you know, they like guys that can, that show they can like throw a couple breaking balls. And like, I'm sure that, you know, he'll show up at Aberdeen at some point next year, um, you know, with the stuff he's got and then he'll, he'll leave there and he'll be throwing a cutter and a splitter. Like they all do. Like, it's just kind of, and like when you have that kind of stuff as it is, and like, I think that's what I'm really fascinated to see is we, they have made such good pitchers out of guys with less stuff. Um, maybe not less, but different stuff. Like this is like big time stuff and they still have, and it still has the traits that they can work with and the things they're going to look at and say, Oh, you can do X and Y. Like let's enhance this. Let's tweak this. Let's make this better because this pitch works like this guy's and we can do this. Like they have all that stuff, you know, in their capability set as, you know, as a pitching program. So the idea of someone with that kind of arm strength and that kind of talent um, entering into that is really, that's, that's intriguing to me. And like, I don't know how, what that looks like. Does is the end of the year in double a, like, I don't know, but like he could be really, really good in the low minors to the point that you're saying like, wow, this guy, you know, if this was this guy's draft year and he had this kind of stuff, he's going, really really early and said they got him as a sophomore and he's putting together a really good year in the low minors like i think that could happen yeah that was what is the most exciting about the 2023 draft draft class for me is see what they're able to do with guys like justin armbruster alex fam the way they're able to develop these guys but then you guys you get guys like baumeister or Kiefer lord zach fruit teddy sharkey these guys with big stuff what can they do with that when they have that clay to mold in their hands so yeah it'll be fun to see yeah it's and, and you know it's it's there you know like the the capability and like that's what i'm more most fascinated about like it makes a lot of sense for a guy who's taken on the third day to spend you know four months in delmarva and two months in aberdeen and then after three more months in aberdeen you know he's 24 years old and you're like oh i guess i should pay attention to this guy because he's good um like that's that's fun, like if you, if that's what you're into, but it's not, it's not like fast track type stuff. Like Grayson Rodriguez was never on the fast track. Um, he moved relatively quickly, and then he got the AAA, and he was there forever. Um, you know, like Theo Hall was never on a fast track. Like, I mean, I'm really interested to see what that looks like because they're really aggressive with hitters. Hitters when, you know, when it when it's required, but I from what I understand about how, you know, they want to develop pitchers, like they have long-term development plans and I'm not sure those involve starting in Delmarva and ending in Bowie, but sometimes you might just have to do that. I, I think it'd be really cool to see somebody force that issue. I'm not sure we will, but that's a candidate right there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be my last like kind of prospect focus question for the night. I know that we've got a little ways to go here in the off season. We got a little ways to go until the prospect America baseball, America prospect handbook comes out, but is it fair to say the overall top 30 because of last year's draft is more pitcher heavy than it has been uh, in the last few years? Um, yes, I don't think I've, I should have counted that out. I do think there are more pitchers in there. I think part of that is the draftees um, to be sure. I think there's, yeah, there's a couple hitters and there's more pitchers from this draft that are ranked, or maybe there's the same. I think that I think that more pitchers kind of popped up into the, you know, also popped up into those spots that were vacated by guys who were graduated or guys who traded who were traded. Um, it's just kind of the nature of how the system has gone. I think that I also think that how quickly players moved um, from the last few drafts really accentuated and, and kind of by comparison dimmed some of the hitters that didn't move as quickly. Um, and, and there also just weren't a lot of like, if you're going to talk about like the Jacksons and like, you know, the top 10 guys is their own tiers. And then you have like the Beavers and the Horvath and, 
yeah, and Judd Fabian and, and Max Wagner as like, you know, kind of the next tier, like the tier below them is a little thinner than you would expect. And like, that's not any kind of knock. That's just like, we're talking about like, like who, who is, who is like shouting from the rooftops of like my 13th best hitting prospect is, is, is great. Like that sounds like that's how that'd be fun, but like not everybody could do that. Um, so I think that the pitchers really took steps forward, you know, guys like Alex Pham, guys you mentioned, Keaton Gillies is in there. Um, just like, what do we, this guy has like ridiculous, um, you know, results. He gets a ton of swings, swinging strikes. He's like, it's a real big league, like reliever profile. And I'm not the biggest, like ranking relievers guy. Um, I live that, I live that life for, for a while. I'm, I'm good on that. Um, but I, but I, but I, it was like, you know, when we were kind of splitting hairs, I think you say like, why wouldn't this guy go in? Um, so there definitely are more pitchers in, in the back end than you would expect. Um, and I wish I had numbers, but I did not count that out. Yeah, it's interesting. There is a, like a little bit of a law, not even obviously the first tier is great. Even the second tier is pretty good. I feel like, and there's a bunch of guys I would call the fourth tier, fifth tier that could jump up, but that third tier is a little saggy compared to the last couple if that makes any sense but i feel like the international classes might have to like 2024 might be the year like they really start making their presence known i'm curious like luis de leon frederick ben cosme you know he had a probably a disappointing year last year but i feel like he's still really young for the level leandro arias breland tavera which of these guys anderson de los santos are gonna kind of pop this year and move up so that'll be interesting to see do you got any predictions as far as that goes you know i i don't think i can i don't think i can try to recreate you know the Basaya one i think tavera is is probably the best of the fcl graduators but tomas sosa had had a lot of buzz um uh leandro arias is like you mentioned as has you know a really interesting profile as you know i think He's he's ranked you know higher than I would I have him in the BA list in a lot of places and like that's you know that's I don't I, I don't know what I'm trying to say um you know the, there's a lot of variance in these things and like it's a really attractive profile as like a switch hitting middle infielder so I don't blame anybody um, I think that I wish I I wish personally like for for the purposes of like rankings um, that Luis Almeida had not gotten hurt because I feel like. I feel like there's just going to be a moment. I don't know when it'll be when like that just clicks and like, you know, there's a lot of talent there and I think it's a good opportunity for the Orioles to have him, you know, in the system at the age that they got him in as opposed to waiting for the draft. They're probably not going to be drafting high enough to select somebody that talented um, when he's draft eligible. But I do think that is, you know, as you were saying, like, you know, as you're kind of getting to this point where, where there's a lot of, separation and in the tiers and levels like having international guys with huge upside really really can can change how you think about a system um so can having like pitchers with really good stuff and good results um i think that this draft class has a lot louder stuff than than some of the guys who have good results in the oral system presently and i think that's going to help people kind of understand what's going on here on the pitching side and maybe give those guys a little more recognition outside the people that follow it. But you're exactly right that the international class is going to be not on notice, but like they are going to be you know, significantly responsible for maintaining the depth in, in this organization. And that's why you have an international program. That's why you hired Kobe Perez and, and put together the team of people that, you know, he and, and, the Orioles have because they've signed a lot of really, really good players who are making impacts all over the league and are on top prospect lists all over the league at their previous stops. And now they're getting this operation going here. And you're talking about, you know, the time frame where some of those early signees that they had are going to be able to do the same thing. Well, Don, we really appreciate your insight and for you joining us tonight. Thank you so much. And our listeners, I think, by now know where to find you. But 
Can you tell uh, our listeners what they can expect over the Baltimore banner where you and the very talented team of writers cover the Orioles, um, as well as what to look for in the Baseball America Prospect Handbook when that drops next spring? Yeah, so the banner is obviously a lot of stuff going on with the Orioles right now. Um, you know, baseball and non-baseball related. Andy Casca, Daniel Allen, Tuck, Kyle Goon, Paul Mancano, everybody over there is, is doing a really good job of, of keeping – you know, keeping our arms around everything. Um, it's better than the alternative when nothing has happened, although you know some things are a little more complicated to write about than others. You know, I wrote I wrote today kind of what I talked about, like where does the payroll go when you're paying a $13 million closer? Um, that's going to be up tomorrow. I don't know when people are listening to this. I assume it's going to be up tomorrow. Um, and the Baseball America, the rest of the top 30 and the and the next 10 are probably going to be out sometime in the in, in the winter. It's it's a really interesting list. I, I think I, you know, I say this every year. I really am honored that they asked me to do it. And I love the opportunity to just talk to people inside, outside the organization about these guys. You learn a lot about the players. The, you know, you learn about, about what's going on around the game. You learn a lot about different perspectives. I feel like there were a couple instances where I kept hearing things and I was just like, you keep saying that. Why do you keep saying that? And now I know, you know, the answer to those questions and that makes me feel really good. And like, I feel like I'll be able to write about things better um, by the knowledge that I get through this process. And I hope some of that comes through in the handbook. And I hope that some of that comes through um, in conversations like this with you guys and in the writing at the banner. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff out there. Well, John, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. That uh, does it for tonight's episode of On The Verds. You can find us on X, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And as a reminder, we are now part of Believe Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the other shows here covering all sports on Believe Podcast Network. We will be back next week. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to Orioles On The Verds.